0: Hello, this is Barbara DeGran. I'm an abolitionist vegan from Texas in the USA. You can find me at veganacious.com, and you're listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I know that human beings and fish can coexist peacefully.
1: Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, us well. get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. On this episode, I'd like to introduce a friend's new podcast, Talk about teaching people to respect small animals, a perception of farmers, killing deer in national parks, and killing sick racehorses. I decided to dedicate this episode to my friend Barbara DeGrand of Veganacious.com, who has now started her very own podcast promoting abolitionist veganism, but first I have a sad story to tell about a small visitor. While respecting my friendship with Barbara, I'd first like to talk about a very small friend who I found in a bad way. If you check my Flickr page, I've included a link in the show notes. You should be able to see it in the lyrics section or on my blog, coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com, that the inside of my glasshouse was covered with chickweed and clover. In the Few Day Old Chicks photo album, you'll notice it's like a little green forest, with clover roughly the same height as the Few Day Old Chicks. When the chicks were small, We would keep the chickens safely in the glasshouse during the day, sealed up to protect our little friends from cats. I've got friends who have cats and they laugh off what cats do to other animals. Oh, last night Mittens was playing with a bug! Well the bug was fighting for his or her life to escape. Chickens and baby chicks especially do not like to play with cats, they're terribly afraid of them. I'm not sure if they would behave the same way around dogs or other animals. But around cats, they freak out, making a special noise I only ever hear them produce around cats. It's a special alert. There's a cat trying to kill us. So I make sure to keep them safe from cats during the day while I work. They'd always be safely locked away in the large glasshouse. That lovely little forest of clover and chickweed that made a lovely carpet to walk over was soon reduced to a muddy slop if I hosed inside the glasshouse. I've been trying to reseed the chickweed. It grows just fine everywhere else in the garden by itself, but it doesn't seem to like inside the glasshouse anymore. I've been keeping the door closed so the chickens couldn't enter, so that some chickweed and other weed-like plants that are left inside could have a chance to take off. It's strange, I know, but I really don't care what starts growing in there, as long as there's something over the mud. The chickens will manage it once it takes off, Now the chickens are allowed to go anywhere in the back garden on their own, they won't be forced into strip grazing the glasshouse beer. I'd been watering inside the glasshouse when I noticed a chicken wire screen shaking. There was a hole at the bottom, and a little wild mouse had become stuck. Its body was threaded through a couple of holes at the bottom, much like a shoelace going through the eyelets of a shoe. I have no idea how or why the mouse had gotten into that state, but it had happened. Sometimes things don't need to be further explained. I was horrified when I realised what had happened. The pain that the mouse must have been in. It must have been immense. Its little body was twisted every which way. I suppose it had somehow tried to bend to, to exit through another hole, and it had just made the situation worse. It had its little head out on one side, its ears stuck back behind the head hole. Its main body was tightly pulled between that head hole and a second hole where its feet were stuck. It had one back foot, bunched up in pain. It could clench and unclench this foot, and swing its tail, but nothing more. I was very upset, and part of me wanted to take a photo to share with you, to show other people how the mouse had positioned itself. But this wasn't a time for Rotten.com submissions. There was a little friend's life at stake, and so I rushed inside to find a tool. Anything, to get it out. The only thing I could find were some needle-nosed pliers, long thin pliers and I raced out to free the mouse. I noticed the mouse had wet itself, through pain or fear I don't know, but it was surely in pain. The pliers were very blunt, no good for cutting through wire, but they were all I had. I thought about running to my work about 700 metres away, I could even have grabbed an angle grinder, but there really wasn't time. I slowly tugged and broke loops far away from the mouse to try and reduce the tension around it, although it was fairly clumsy work. I had to pull to basically stretch the wire until it broke and I worried about hurting the mouse. It took a while but I got the mouse out. It started to have a panic attack like small birds will if you save them from a cat. Its eyes closed and it was breathing heavily. I left it alone in the glasshouse with some chickweed I had picked beside it, as well as grain if it felt like eating. I got some water and watched from outside with the door closed. It could barely move. I seriously think its neck or spine had been broken. Its head was drooping down terribly. I felt awful, not knowing if it was my doing, that I might have broken its body while I was pulling the wire loops apart, or if it had already been that way from how it trapped itself. I don't know how long the mouse had been like that. It must have been some time. It was in a terrible state. I know I tried my best, but I feel very guilty that perhaps I severely hurt that little wild mouse while trying to free it. I left it in the closed off glass house overnight, with chickweed beside it and partly draped over it to try and keep it warmer and to provide cover. I checked in the morning and it had died. I buried the mouse underneath a silver birch, alongside the two chicks that had been killed by cats, and the second hen we originally were given, who died mysteriously. I had a little tribute by playing Grand Theft Auto 4 Listening to a techno track remixed by a DJ called Mouse, spelt dead M-A-U in the numeral five. I was very respectful in my driving despite surely doing over 300km an hour through crowded New York City streets and Jersey. I didn't run over any pedestrians. I feel terrible because I feel like I could have hurt the mouse while trying to save it. I'd like to thank the Twitter users Oracle, My Face is on Fire, Guitar Drone and NZ Vegan Podcast for saying I did my best to help. This episode is not about feeling sorry for myself or asking anyone listening to forgive me. I'd like to share my happiness that Barbara now has a podcast for Veganacious. Veganacious is probably one of the most well-known vegan websites. You can find Veganacious at www veganacious.com That's spelled vegan, A-C-I-O-U-S dot com. I'll let Barbara speak in her own words. She was kind enough to send me this recording.
0: Hi Jordan, thanks so much for inquiring about my new podcast, Veganacious. I'm really excited to finally have my first episode completed and to open up this new avenue of being able to share with others what I am learning about abolitionist animal rights and veganism and how they impact all different forms of life on planet earth i do see animal rights as being at the juncture of so many important things that are going to impact the future of life on our planet things like global climate shifting the destruction of the habitat for animals and humans, a lack of respect for other forms of life, other forms of culture, the fact that so many humans are disenfranchised and the power is in so few hands. And I believe that can all shift very quickly. I've seen it happen even within my lifetime. And it's shocking to me now to think of things that I grew up with that are no longer acceptable, thank goodness, and how that shift has happened within a single lifetime. So I know things can change. I do not believe, because there's only between 1 and 3 percent of the population globally that are vegans, that that means that's the way it's going to stay. I think that can change rapidly, and I believe everything's in our favor we, um, with what's going on with climate change, with what's going on with the environment, uh, species eradication due to extinction and um, the education that's possible on the internet and with mediums like podcasting. It's very, very exciting to see what's possible and to think what might happen in the future if we all work together to get the word out about uh, the abolitionist approach. So thank you so much, Jordan, for all you bring to the community and for giving me a couple of minutes to share my passions with your listening audience. and. Um, Thank you for the wonderful job you do for the community. Thanks again, Jordan. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: It's thrilling that Barbara now has a podcast of her own. I believe podcasts to be an excellent way to provide information about veganism. I think it's interesting to listen to someone's voice, if only to make fun of their self and accent, the way they roll the ah sound. Are you a murderer? Hello, I'm from gore. Podcasts are also quiet. I doubt many people drive their huge cars about with coexisting with non-human animals deafening the neighbourhood. Podcasts are also free and easy to listen to. I think it's great that Barbara now has a podcast for Veganacious. You can find it on her website, www.veganacius.com, and I hope you'll subscribe to her show on iTunes. Here's a story that made me feel good, from thetimesonline.co.uk. Citizenship Lessons to Teach Children Respect for Worms The story has a captioned photo of a worm on a leaf. I love you, Mr. Worm. By age seven, children will have learnt not to stamp on many beasts. Good citizenship is not just a question of respect for one's fellow humans, it seems. The government has decreed that children should be taught not to hurt a fly. New curriculum guidance says citizenship classes should pay due regard to the well-being of what it calls mini-beasts, including bees, ants and worms. The classes are part of the Animals and Us section of the primary school citizenship curriculum. It says children b- can become active citizens by learning that other living things have needs and they have responsibilities to meet them. By the age of seven, people should have learnt that Humans have a responsibility to ensure the well-being of animals, including mini-beasts, and and will have been told rules for behaviour in areas where animals live, for example, not stamping on insects. The model lessons, which are not compulsory for schools, have been drawn up by the Department for Children, Schools and Families. Children are also taught that it is against the law to leave dogs and cars on a hot day, or to disturb fledglings in a nest. A lot of children do not recognise insects as animals. They stamp on ants and torture spiders, but they wouldn't kill a cat or dog. I think it's just great that children are being taught that insects are animals too, and that while they may not seem to, to show emotions towards us, they are very lovely in their own way and should be respected. If people could agree that small, seemingly common animals such as beetles and bees are beautiful and special, that's a great starting foundation to learn about veganism. Of course, I also wish veganism were mentioned too, although being about 1% of the population, I understand if there are currently not that many vegan teachers to spread the good word. Anyone who's listened to my podcast before should know that I love insects, especially damsel and dragonflies. I spent a mountain of money on a 27-inch iMac with the i7 upgraded CPU. The screen is so wide, I decided to change my desktop wallpaper of a close-up picture of a dragonfly to one I took of it seeming to stretch out horizontally across the entire screen. Damsel and dragonfly seem to be made for high-definition widescreens. They're very thin, long, and highly detailed. Perception of Farmers Here's a story from my local newspaper, The Southland Times, about how farmers are commonly perceived now. I'll only read a small section. You can see all my sources for yourself by reading the show notes on my blog for each episode. Coexisting with non-human animals. Blogspot.com. Dairy farmers spilling cow effluent were seen by the public as more of a threat to society than drink drivers or murderers. Southland dairy farmer Mike Horgan told a dairy industry conference in Invercargill yesterday. There seems to be a consensus across our nation that a dairy farmer spilling a little biodegradable effluent is far more of a threat to society than a drunk driver or murderer, he said. The justice system and the media make a meal out of some farmer's effluent spill, with regular front-page updates and threat of imprisonment. Yet each day in this country, drivers still drive drunk, but no one shames these offenders to the same extent. Mr. Horgan also took a swipe at actor Sam Neill's opposition to plans to house 18,000 cows and doors in the Mackenzie Basin, and the willingness of the gullible public to accept his comments without question. I would suggest his statement that Daring was short lived and the damage to the landscape was everlasting is obviously a line from one of his fairy tale films. Well, Mr. Horgan, compared to the land, anything we do is short lived. If you think I'm being too emotional about Mother Earth, sounding like a greenie who hates humanity, New Zealand farmers have changed operations en masse before. We used to raise sheep to be killed for their wool and meat. In the last decade or so, conversions to dairy farming were very popular. I see no reason why it could not move away from dairy again in the future. And about dairy farms being safe, or at least not damaging to the environment, here's a clip from Fonterra, the main dairy collective. Sort of like the milk board, if you'd like. Dairy giant Fonterra has announced a major crackdown on farmers who don't comply with the dairy effluent rules. Fonterra says the results of the latest clean stream
0: accord are completely unacceptable, finding just 15% of farmers are following the rules. Fonterra has pledged to double its resources into monitoring farming practice. Its goal is to halve the number of non-compliant farmers over the next 18 months and eventually cut the rate to zero.
1: I don't really understand all the figures that come out about dairying. The figures given for how many who are not complying, you know, polluting the country and making our rivers unsafe to swim in, as well as killing any aquatic animals. The statistics are wildly varying. Farmers of ours say, oh, it's just one or two bad farmers who give us all a bad name. But you heard the Fonterra clip I played, it seems hardly any are doing a great job. Another site I've linked to in the show notes is a Southland Times article. Quote, Southland dairy farmers are getting better at complying with effluent regulations, even though most of their national counterparts are struggling. Blah, 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 blah. Only 60% of dairy farms fully complying with regulations, down from 64% in 2007 to 2008. In Southland, full compliance has increased from 65% to 69% even though the number of dairy farms in the province has increased from 658 to 752. So we have 752 dairy farms in a region with a population of only 100,000. Here's an old story about killing deer. A wet, windy and cold summer is making the job of an aerial deer hunter in Fieldland tougher than usual. Department of Conservation Biodiversity Manager Lindsay Wilson said deer were not retreating to open areas like they usually did in summer. It's been quite difficult because of the weather. The deer have not moved up into open country as they would have normally by now, Mr Wilson said. Helicopter pilot Dick Deeker, who has 38 years experience in deer recovery in Fiordland, agreed, saying the weather had been real bad this summer. And the deer recovery business is 100% reliant on fair to good weather. Mr. Deeker recovered deer with a syndicate of about four fieldland helicopter pilots. The meat was trucked to a processing plant in Require near Christchurch, and most of it ended up in Europe, he said. Mr. Mr. Wilson described the hunters as the unsung heroes of conservation, because Doc could never afford to do the work itself, he said. For us, the implication of what those guys are doing is huge, Mr. Wilson said. It's a massive saving for the taxpayer. About 7,000 deer were shot and recovered from the national park every year. Aerial deer hunting had stopped for about five years when venison prices tumbled, but resumed about three years ago. Doc studies showed stopping the hunting led to deer numbers climbing, and the park's native vegetation was suffering. Since they've started up again, there's been a notable recovery in the condition of these plants. I see. So, the deer are to be cursed at for not moving into less covered areas as the hunters expected. These hunters are the unsung heroes of conservation. And it's a massive saving for the taxpayer. 7,000 deer were shot and, quote, recovered from the national park every year. Wow, that's about seven times the amount of animals is killed by the Japanese whaling fleet. Yet when New Zealanders kill animals, they are unsung heroes of conservation. Don't the whalers claim to be helping conserve whales too? Oh, we're just doing lethal tests on them to find out how long they'd live for. You know, if we hadn't have killed them. Like the whalers, the meat from the deer uh, is apparently sold too. I also found it strange that the hunting stops when the sale price of the meat is lower. What? What? Deer are not pests anymore, if their meat is not worth X a kilogram? If these animals are so terrible for the environment, oh the National Park, we have to save it from the awful deer, who want to ruthlessly bite the leaves off plants. Oh, endangered species this. Hunters are unsung heroes for conservation that. You'd think they'd still think they'd still be out there killing them, despite their bodies being worth a dollar a kilogram instead of a dollar and ten cents. I don't know too much about the horse racing industry, but I realize that the horses are trained to do what the tiny Napoleon-esque midget bashing them with a whip dictates. This is another old story I wanted to play. A clip from the famous Mark Todd, New Zealand equestrian, who had one of his most famous horses killed.
0: Kiwi Olympic great Mark Todd has suffered a blow this Christmas. He's had to have Gandalf, the horse he rode at the Olympics last year, and hoped to ride again at the 2012 Games in London, put down in England. Gandalf had suffered a neurological disorder and had recently experienced seizures and lost the sight in his right eye. Todd said it was a tough decision to put Gandalf down, but he'd become a danger to both himself and his handlers. He admits it will now be a challenge to get one of his younger horses up to Olympic standard.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if Todd really cared for his horses. I don't know if he's an evil man or a lovely person. We heard that Gandalf the horse had suffered seizures and become blind in one eye. I suppose this is not really treatable but fairly often you hear that when racehorses get ill, they're written off like a car after a crash. A horse that had brought its owner and rider millions of dollars in winnings will be killed if it breaks a leg. You'd think with that kind of money, it could be fixed. Heck, in the 1970s, a whole man was rebuilt for only $6 million.
0: Steve Austin, astronaut. A man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him, we have the technology, we have the capability to make the world.
1: After all the money the racehorse had brought in for its owner and the rider, you think they could spend a bit of that just fixing its leg so it could live out a normal life. Instead, the horse is disposed off as if it were week-old soy milk. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've had quite a few technical problems making it and I'm learning to use a new version of GarageBand. I hope that if you try and help a trapped animal in future, you'll have better results than I have. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode, as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com. If you want to contact me, even just to say you've listened, send an email to jwondart@gmail.com, at gmail.com or on twitter twitter.com slash i i'd appreciate it thank you for listening away from the
0: ocean of animals as things and toward the moral personhood of animals the choice is ours if you're not vegan go vegan it's easy it's better for you it's certainly better for the planet And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.